D-Day is tomorrow, or at least the 75th anniversary of it. I have not served in a way that risked my life, so it's a little out of my range. I hope what I say makes sense. I also read stories recently, it happened to be in The Guardian, of people who are now in their 90s who served during D-Day. I also recently got an email from a friend who was considering not flying. And I read one of many stories, this is in the New York Times, about considering not flying. And I'm also reading The Uninhabitable Earth, a book about life after the warming. And I'm going to read parts of each and then synthesize. So first, for context, as everybody knows, the Allies invaded Normandy on D-Day to fight Hitler. Hitler ordered killing 6 million Jews and threatened to take over Europe, probably more. So if in that context, here's one of the stories from The Guardian. It says, Chelsea pensioner Frank Moquet, I hope he's pronouncing his name right, 94, was a corporal in the Royal Engineers who landed on Sword Beach and whose job was to dispose of bombs on a stretch that lay beyond the parapet next to the beach. He says, after reaching the beach, I ran up towards the parapet and searched for mines. After 12 hours of being on the go, we were exhausted and then had to dig a foxhole to sleep in. We had to dig six foot down and two foot wide. I slept outside for the next year or so. We had no protection from the elements. We had an oversized gas cape to go over our clothes and our gear. We rarely slept lying down. Each time we slept in a barn, we were ravaged by fleas. So even that was no good. It was a different time. I wasn't a hero. I was a little cog in a big wheel. When you add all those little cogs together, then we became important. We all worked together towards peace. So that's one story from there. I want to read another. This is from a woman named Marie Scott, 92, a switchboard operator who volunteered for the Women's Royal Naval Service at 17. So she says, It was quite a series of tunnels, quite Spartan, she said of Fort Southwick. The tunnels were very deep. We had to go down about 350 steps to get to the tunnels and indeed come up 350 steps. But at 17, you could do it. We had long shifts, so we had to sleep down there as well. There was no natural light. There was no fresh air. So we had air conditioning and electric lights. On and off, I was down there for certainly six to nine months, over D-Day and after D-Day, she said. We knew something big was afoot because there was an armada of boats in Portsmouth Harbor. That was a giveaway. She goes on and says, When they raised the lever, I could hear very loud sustained gunfire. It was really so bad that you thought, Oh my God, there's a battle going on. You thought, God, men are dying. The reality suddenly hit you. For a rather naive 17-year-old, I think it was terrifying. But it was a job. You got on with it. The messages were all in code, so you didn't know what was being said. But you could hear the gunfire every time the lever was lifted. I've never forgotten what I've heard. Never. She continued a bit below in the article. I'm deeply honored and very humbled. You feel that you can't be deserving because men laid down their lives. We are the backroom people, she said. It's overwhelming, really. So that's a couple stories of people who served defending the free world. Keep in mind, they are the ones who survived. Their sacrifice was tremendous and less than other sacrifice. But note the end. We all worked together for peace. Even as cogs, it all added up together. We worked together for peace. I suspect they wish they didn't have to serve, but don't regret it given the situation. Now consider what my friend said in a recent email to me. First, when she told me she was considering going to India, I wrote to her and now going to the middle of this email. I don't understand how people can separate their actions from the front page environmental news. How can they see pictures of, say, the air in New Delhi and not connect that they are polluting thousands of times more than the average person there? I'm surprised at how easily they can dismiss consequences they don't actually see. Anyway, let me know if I can support you. I didn't write the above about you, but because you're one of the few people I can share such thoughts with who I think wouldn't take it personally, but might also think about it. One thing that might help regarding India. North America is a stunningly beautiful, diverse land with equally beautiful and diverse people. No one could possibly sample it all in a lifetime. For whatever India offers, there's just as much unknown to train right away. 
Before I sail to Europe, it looks like I'll sail to Mexico, Puerto Rico, or places near Florida, and probably all at almost no cost, using findacrew.net, which is a website, where I've met friendly people offering spaces on their boats, though I haven't taken them up on it yet. If I always think of what I'm missing, I'll never be satisfied. If I enjoy what I have, I'll always feel joy. So I wrote that thinking, maybe that would influence her to consider not going to India. What she wrote back was, hey, Josh, I hear you. Unfortunately, the research I'm doing in India is really important to me. I was invited to go back to India after last year's visit. I'm doing my activist affordable housing work in my own city and doing much more walking to get places. It's hard for me not to put what she said in context. Well, I want to do this research and, you know, I'm walking places. So that kind of equals out. It's hard for me not to put that in context of the people who survived D-Day, let alone the people who did not survive D-Day. Now, here's a response from the New York Times article on considering flying less. This person wrote, I've not flown for vacation travel in over 10 years, but I'm now flying several times a year east to west coast to see my son, daughter-in-law, and baby granddaughter. I hate everything about flying, and I hate knowing that I'm contributing to climate change. I rationalize that I'll compensate in other ways. No meat, driving less than $1,000 per year, but of course I am contributing. And then he continues, I think we all need to be more mindful and cut back in every instance that we can stand to, but there's no way I'm not going to see my child and his child. Hmm. Not that much sacrifice or considering the consequences of others. Well, still, maybe the effects of flying aren't as significant as World War II. Okay, here's a passage from The Uninhabitable Earth that I just thumbed through quickly and found any number of parts I could have picked. Here's one about climate refugees. And then there will be the refugees from Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and the rest of South Asia. 140 million by 2050, the World Bank estimates, meaning more than 100 times Europe's Syrian crisis. The UN projections are bleaker. 200 million climate refugees by 2050. 200 million was the entire world population at the peak of the Roman Empire. If you can imagine every single person alive and living anywhere on the planet at that time, dispossessed of their home and turned outward to wander through hostile territories in search of a new one. And here's another passage, this time about lives at stake. It says, numbers that large can be hard to grasp, but 150 million is the equivalent of 25 holocausts. It is three times the size of the death toll of the Great Leap Forward, the largest non-military death toll humanity has ever produced. It is more than twice the greatest death toll of any kind, World War II. It sounds like the consequences of climate change, to say one part of all the environmental things happening to us, is bigger than World War II, yet people aren't considering acting in the slightest, remotely, comparably to D-Day. The crazy thing is that D-Day meant risking dying and dying, trauma to last a lifetime, but it also meant being a part of something greater than yourself. By comparison to risking death and death, not flying means enjoying your community. We are missing one of the greatest possible experiences, being a part of something greater than yourself. You know, when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, I look back at the 60s and I thought they had such great music. They had such great protests. What did we have in the 70s and 80s? We had Reagan. It wasn't community. It wasn't togetherness. It wasn't being a part of something greater than yourself. Those who defended the free world 75 years ago gave us 75 years of freedom. How can we squander it so callously? I sometimes wonder if their greatest legacy, given the risks to billions of people's lives, would be that to give everything you can in the service of something greater than all of us, something that benefits everyone, and something that benefits yourself, maybe one of the greatest projects anyone can enlist in. We have that opportunity to give what we can. And this does not mean risking our lives. This means not flying. It means turning down the bag at the grocery store. It's not even what you give up. It's what you get instead, which means 
enjoying your community, meeting your neighbors, spending more time with your family. It means to give what we can in the service of everyone. What it takes is to give up on thinking of what you're missing and to learn to love your community. Learn what's around you. Enjoy your local world, what humans have done for hundreds of thousands of years until just a couple generations ago. This entitlement that we can do anything we want whenever we want and not care about how it affects others is not making us happier. It's creating more craving. Plato and Aristotle weren't miserable thinking, if only I could fly somewhere faster and could hold thousands of songs in my pocket, then I'd be happy. Happiness is there. It comes from inside. It's not a sacrifice not to fly. It's only a sacrifice to imagine that of what you're giving up. It's what you replace it with, community. Without being able to fly so much, families will spend more time together. I just can't stop thinking that maybe the greatest legacy of the sacrifice of the people that we remember on this day, 75 years later, if their greatest legacy is not to help us become a global team where each of us has each other's backs and each of us helps each other to help and to give to something greater than any one of us that we all benefit from, that we each benefit from. My big question on the day before D-Day is can we learn from those who served to fight a common enemy and transform that service from beyond being a cog into creating peace to get past today, but I want, I want, I want this entitlement without regard to the consequences of our actions on others to transform what looks from the outside as sacrifice to living by our environmental values and being a part of something greater than ourselves to have each other's backs. Yes, that means not flying, but what that really means is enjoying your community to finding nearby you what you love. And it's not just flying. It's not having the air conditioner on quite so much all the time, certainly turning it off when you're not at home. It's discovering the joys of living in concert with the environment and with each other as part of a team, contributing to something greater than yourself, knowing that I have your back, you have my back, we can do this.